Mike Drop listeners, I want to take a quick second to just uh, say thank you as we wrap this year up. Uh, I want to say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year. I hope everybody had a fruitful year uh, and have a successful 2024. Most importantly, I just want to thank you guys for tuning in show after show and, and giving me an ability to bring you the amazing stories that these incredible guests that uh, that come on this show have. So uh, from all of us here at the, at the team at Mike Drop, to all of, out, all of you out there, listeners, uh, thank you. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and Happy New Year. And they looked at me like, Stuart, you ready to go in the morning? I was like, wait a second, the guy just died. And, but that was like my introduction to naval aviation and you know combat aviation. Uh, you don't stop because someone dies. I think flying is one of those things that some people treat like a science and some people treat like an art. And for me, it was an art. I mean, I, I grew up around aviation. Dad was a recreational pilot, and so I'd always go flying with him. It was just in my blood. Number one reason is I, I, I just wanted to fly. You know, I just wanted to fly fighter jets. We would fly what's called combat spread, which is about a mile apart. Having to look at your airspeed, you're having to look at how much G's you're putting on the jet, because it all affects the bomb's trajectory. You pickle too early, you know, the bomb's not getting the target. You pickle too late, you know, you can be caught in the frag pattern when you pull off. I remember looking around thinking, and I am in a jet on a boat in the middle of the ocean. This is the craziest thing I've ever done. Still today, I put our pilots against theirs, and that's what it's going to come down to is the man in the cockpit. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 11 years on active duty as an F-18 Hornet pilot, 12 years as a reservist. He did three carrier deployments, one TACP deployment and one JSOC deployment. He was a Top Gun instructor, and he's now an author of Unknown Rider, which we're going to talk about, as well as the Battleborn series. He taught Maverick how to get inverted. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, Jack Stewart. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Appreciate, appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Love your show. Oh, thanks for coming, and uh, I appreciate the kind words. It, it's uh, for sure humbling to, to have you know somebody like you listen to the show and, and to, to come on. So thanks for, uh, for joining us. Um, what's the last full book that you read? last full book that I read. I read so much. It's, I usually have a hardback that I'm reading and then I have an ebook and then I have an audio book that I'm listening to. And oh, it just no, kind of sure. depends on where I am. So, um, I can tell you right now I'm reading the last, um, uh, Tom Clancy novel by oh. Don Bentley called weapons grade. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, the last, man, the last one I finished, um, I, I also read books that aren't published yet. Oh, really? Um, one of my friends, Del Roll, he's a retired Green Beret, retired CIA case officer, and he's trying to break into the business. So he always sends me his stuff to read. That was probably the yeah. last one I yeah. finished. All right. Yeah. What's uh, what's the worst vacation story you have? Worst vacation story? Um, pretty much anyone that involves my kids at Disney World. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's vacation for them, but it's not for me. You know, it's yeah. like I need another three or four yeah. days after that. How old are they? Uh, right now they're 17, 15, and 11. Oh, okay. Yeah. But back when they were... When they were little, yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah, yeah, you're rough. chasing them around yeah. everywhere. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, what's your your normal AM routine on a on a day when you're in town and just kind of a, a run of the mill day? Yeah, uh, normally um, I'm an early riser, so I usually get up before five, put on a, a pot of coffee, um, and and I usually just spend a few minutes scrolling social media, you know, and uh, checking out 
I guess X and Instagram and stuff. And then I, and then I sit down with uh, what I started writing the day before and kind of read through, get back into a story and then, uh, and then just start writing. Yeah. And I usually do that, you know, for a few hours in the morning uh, before the kids, you know, take off for school. Yeah. And then uh, you're a Southwest pilot. I am. Yeah. Uh, rotation wise. I mean, what, what does that look like? Days it, on days off. It varies, but on average, I would say we're, we work three days on and then four days off. Yeah. So I've got uh, four days at home. Usually with my seniority right now, I'm in the middle of the week. So I always joke that, you know, I have so much seniority that I'm home every Wednesday, you know, <laughs> which usually means I'm working on the weekends. Yeah. Um, but yeah, usually, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I'm flying uh, and a.m. trips, which means start early in the morning and end in the afternoon. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to get into some of the just pilot questions, general yeah, pilot sure. questions that I know I have. And I think a lot of people will, but we'll we'll get to that here in a bit. Um, where were you originally born and raised? So I was born in Fullerton, California. Most of my family was from Southern California, the Orange County area. Uh, both my parents graduated from Cal State Fullerton. Um, and not long after I was born, we moved up to Washington State and lived in a couple of places there. Lived in Yakima, um, lived in Wenatchee, and then kind of settled in the Seattle area in a suburb called, called Bothell. Oh, okay. And uh, that's where I was uh, went through elementary school, middle school, high school, yeah. and then... Uh, haven't lived west of Texas since graduating high school. Oh, wow. Um, did you have siblings? I had one sister, one older sister. Uh, what about sports? Did you play sports growing up? Uh, I did. Um, I was a runner and a swimmer. Oh, so okay. I, I, I ran cross country. Um, I ran long distance track, mile and two mile, and yeah. then uh, swam. How would you characterize your grade point average, uh, generally speaking? Uh, in high school, it was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was focused in high school, and so it wasn't wasn't a four zero, but it was pretty close. Yeah. Um, college, not so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I think most people, at least, I guess my uh, expectation or or understanding of, I mean, anybody that even gets into flight school, like, I guess it's surprising to hear that you didn't do great in college and still <laughs> managed to become a, a not just a pilot, but a fucking fighter pilot. Yeah. Um, how do you how do you kind of uh, explain that? You know, um, I think flying is one of those things that it's um, some people treat it like a science and some people treat it like an art. And for me, it was an art. I mean, I, I grew up around aviation. Uh, my dad was a recreational pilot, and so I'd always go flying with him. It was just in my blood. Oh, okay. And um, uh, but it's funny now when I talk to schools and uh, you know teachers will invite me in, and uh, kids will ask, "Do you have to be good at math to be a pilot?" And I'll be like, "No." No, you don't. And the teacher's <laughs> in the back shaking her head like, no, don't say that. Um, but awesome. it's true. Yeah, I mean, I um, I don't do math in the cockpit now. Yeah. I, um, I'll, you know, I run out of fingers and, yeah. and just kind of guess. That's fucking classic. Um, what uh, what was your motivation to serve? And, and like in high school, you said you were super focused. Were you? Did mm-hmm. you know at that point that that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I told my parents when I was eight years old, I was going to go to the Naval Academy. Oh, wow. And um, I read an article in Boys Life magazine that talked about King Hall, which is the dining facility where all 4,000 midshipmen eat at once. And I, I thought that was the coolest thing. And I didn't really know what the Naval Academy was, but as I got older, you know, I was, I'd, I'd go to the school library and check out the catalog. And um, my junior high had a 1976 catalog. And back then they didn't have women at the Naval Academy. So I honestly didn't know that women went to the Naval Academy until I got there because I had such bad information, but (laughs) I wrote them every year and I said, Hey, I want to go. And they said, you're too young. Here's a sticker, you know, talk to us when you're older every year. I did that. And then finally one year they sent back an application 
Um, so it was just, it was something I always wanted to do. Now, as far as the service part of it goes, um, my mom's dad, my, my grandfather was a B-17 pilot in World War II. He, he died when I was a baby, but I saw his pictures. I had his log from combat and, um, and I just grew up really respecting that generation, yeah. you know? And then obviously, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, Vietnam was like the big thing for TV shows, you know, call of duty was, uh, I think tour of duty. Yeah. It was tour of duty it was a TV show. Then all the movies took place in Vietnam. And I, you know, I, I watched those and, um, you know, I was aware of how our service members were treated coming back from Vietnam. Um, and, but I, I, I always had respect for them, you know, even though some, some didn't want to be there, some didn't want to serve, some were drafted, didn't matter. You know, they did serve, they did put on the uniform and I always respected them. And so, um, you know, I'd go to air shows with my dad and he would go look at aerobatic planes and all the civilian planes and anything that was painted all of drab or gray. That's what I was drawn to. Yeah. I was drawn to the men and women in uniform, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Did you see Top Gun as a kid? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, was that a, a big... For several times. Yeah. yeah. Well, how old are you? Uh, I was here. Well, I'll be 47 okay. next month. Yeah. So, so we're almost the same age. I mean, that, that was a big influence, I think, for a lot of young men oh, yeah. in, in our age group, you know, and uh, even uh, myself, you know, when I... My parents actually still have my... Uh, it's my kindergarten yearbook. Yeah. Um, and they ask, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up or whatever? And I put Navy pilot. Yeah, you know, kind <laughs> that's of funny because uh, I, I in my I think in my yearbook I said I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So oh no, she has something in common there. <laughs> that's fucking great. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, <clears throat> all right, so you graduate high school, or I guess you you apply uh, to yeah. the academy. You got in, I, I did. Yeah, yeah, I got accepted to all the service academies. That again, I just wanted to serve. Yeah. Um, so I applied to Air Force, West Point, Coast Guard. Um, and, but Navy was where my heart was. Yeah. And so that's where I went. Yeah. Well, yeah, from a, an air force versus Navy Marine Corps pilot, um, I assume, you know, not, not knowing much about either, uh, capability wise. I mean, is one kind of regarded more highly over the other from your guys' standpoint? Yeah, I, mean, I know it's a little, you're a little biased, but yeah, if you ask an air force guy, they're obviously going to tell you air force. Um, but, uh, you know, I always, I always say, uh, say it like this, when an Air Force pilot goes back to land at base, it's exactly where it was when he took off. Yeah. He doesn't have to find it. That's number one. We ha When we return to the carrier, we have no idea where it is. Oh, wow. We have to find it in the ocean. Yeah. So you tell me what's yeah. better. <laughs> I guess, that, you know, from uh, when you're looking to, as a high school kid, I yeah. guess, you know, what was your thought process of saying, I know you said your heart was in the Navy, yeah. but, but do you know why it was and, and not the Air Force? Just thinking of like, if you want to be a pilot, it seems like the Air Force. Yeah, it would. I mean, um, it definitely would. The Air Force, if you want to be a pilot, that's where you go, right? Um, but, you know, I was always drawn to the ocean, yeah. you know? I mean, I think everybody who has served in the Navy probably is in one way or another. 
Um, I, I still, to this day, when I'm on the ocean, I feel peace. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of guys, you know, like I've did so many cruises, I don't need to go on a cruise, but I'll go on a cruise with my family and look out over the water and just, you know, feel calm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the Navy, to me, the history there really drew me to it. You know, the Air Force didn't exist until, you know, after World War II when they broke away from the Army. Um, so there is history, but it's just not the same. It doesn't yeah. go back to wooden ships and, yeah. you know, pulling into ports of call around the world. And Yeah. You know. No, I'm tracking. Obviously, I'm a Navy guy. You yeah. Know, but, yeah. Um, all right. So when you went to the Academy, um, expectation versus reality, what uh, what was that like? Yeah. Um, it, you know, I think I had this vision that everybody that went to the Naval Academy went for the same reasons that I did. And that was to to serve and to be the best officer possible when you graduate. Um, there were a lot of people that went there for different reasons, whether it was their parents went there, or their siblings went there. Um, they were recruited to play sports. They wanted to play Division One, but they couldn't, you know, go to the bigger school. Um, and I think uh, during that four year time, you know, you, you start you started to realize that, you know, maybe I'm too serious, and maybe they're not serious enough, and everyone kind of balances out. Um, because the ones who I thought weren't serious at all are, are some of the ones that are now still in, still serving, you know, commanding aircraft carriers and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and the ones who were really serious, you know, got out after four years. Um, so I think my expectation was that um, we were all going to feel the same and be the same. But, you know, you, re you quickly realize that no matter how uniform the military looks from the outside, yeah, you have all different personalities, all different backgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess from a, from an environmental standpoint, uh, was it, I mean, had you researched quite a bit, like what it was going to yeah. be like and, and you had a pretty good grasp on that or was there any culture shock of like, Holy fuck. I mean, there's obviously culture shock. I mean, I grew up in Seattle. I grew up in a somewhat liberal household. Um, sir and ma'am was not the norm for me. So there was that culture shock of just going in the military, which anybody experiences. Um, but, um, you know, I, I got an opportunity as a high school student to go for a week in the summertime, and they kind of give you a, a glimpse into what it's like to be a midshipman at the Naval Academy. Yeah. And so I knew what to expect from that regard. Yeah. But as far as 24-7, 365, you know, being a, you know, a uniformed service member, that was, a, that was a shock to me. Yeah. Uh, from a, a challenge, physically speaking, was, was that kind of what you expected, or was it harder or easier? No, I mean, I was, you know... Again, I was a, a competitive swimmer, runner, so I, I didn't have a whole lot of difficulty in um, in that aspect of the physical traits. And you know, plebe summer, which is essentially like our boot camp, um, we every morning we do uh, PT with the entire class, so all thousand kids, you know, out on the athletic field. And we had, um, I'll never forget, it was it was a Navy SEAL senior chief, and he rode in on a Harley. You what know? was his name? Man, I can't remember what his name was. Awesome. Um, but like, and there's other guys pretty iconic, I think, at least in the community. Um, Stu Smith is, yeah. uh, he was a company officer there. And so he was always present and there was a few other guys, um, from that, from that community. But, you know, he, they, he put us through the ringer, you know, like, um, I don't think I've ever done so many sit-ups and flutter yeah. kicks and stuff in my life, but, yeah. um, but physically it was pretty, it was pretty easy out cause I was in really good shape yeah. then and. Did you run or swim there sport-wise? No, I didn't. No, I, I started out swimming, um, but quickly realized, like, you know, everybody there has got a scholarship. I don't need to swim yeah. to keep doing it. So, 
I just started playing intramurals. Yeah. yeah. I tried boxing. I tried rowing. Yeah. Uh, intramural football. and Rowing's a yeah. fucking kick in the dick. Oh, that was terrible. Yeah. The first competition I did, uh, they were called erg sprints. You know, the rowing machines? Yeah. And it was, I remember, where were we? Like Philadelphia or something. We'd go up to this gymnasium and it's full of all these rowing machines. And there's a big board up and you can see your boat up there. And a little icon as it moves across and you just start rowing and you're sprinting as fast as you can. And and trying to win and everyone's like vomiting and, and falling off the rowing machines when they're done. And we hadn't gone anywhere. I mean, yeah. you, you don't move yeah. an inch. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. My, uh, I've got a protection dog client whose son was, a uh, went to Dartmouth and was on the rowing yeah. team there. And I went and spoke there uh, a few years ago and, uh, and got to hang out with their rowing team for an afternoon and watch a workout and whatever. Like, you want to jump in? I was like, well, fuck no, I don't. <laughs> but yeah, you know, watching them, was just like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, this is a whole different fucking level. I mean, I'd always heard that rowing was tough and I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then I saw the practice and I was like, man, these guys are fucking legit. Yep. That's, that's no joke. Uh, is there a specific uh, tradition that stands out at the academy that you kind of look look back fondly on? Man. Because it seems steeped in tradition. It does. Like there's a lot. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of tradition. Um, a, lot, a lot of it was, you know, kind of a harassment, you know, for the plebes. Um, one of the things that they give you right when you check in is called Reef Points. It's this little book, and it has little kernels of information um, stupid sayings that you have to memorize and somebody could come up and ask you, you know, like, um, they, they'd ask you like, how long you've been in the Navy? And there's this big, long thing that you have to recite. And I was like, why are they doing this? You know? Um, and it wasn't until I was in flight school years later that I realized why they did it because they wanted you to learn how to memorize things and to be able to recite them under pressure. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, those are traditions that, you know, I've, I've used later on in life but it's not something I do daily. You know, I, yeah. I'm not, I don't go to my kids' rooms and wake <laughs> them up and, you know, ask them to recite this stuff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the traditions that, that, uh, that mean a lot to me are things that, um, you know, like now when I go back, um, we have in Bancroft Hall, which is where all the midshipmen live, in the very uh, front when you walk in, um, there's, it's called the Rotunda. And there's these stairs that go up into a, a room called Memorial Hall. And you look up the stairs and you can see the flag that says, don't give up the ship, right? Do not give up the ships, right up there. And uh, right below that, in a, a case covered in glass, are the names from every class of, of graduates who died in combat. And um, every class has a plaque with their names on it. And so um, for me, a tradition when I go back and I take my kids and we, we walk in there, and it's a somber time um, just to remember the people that came before me and the sacrifices they made um, for this country. And, and so what's one of the things I took away from that, that place was, you know, it didn't matter whether you're a graduate from, you know, 1900 or a graduate from 2011, you know, your service is remembered. Yeah. You know. What year did it uh, start? Uh, 1845. 1845. Forgive my naivete. I've, I've never been yeah. there, uh, yeah. but when I kind of imagine, you know, I've seen, you know, some pictures and stuff, but, you know, it's like this old East Coast, you know, campus yeah. facility kind of thing. It, it almost gives me like a Harry Potter vibe. Yeah. Like, is, is there any anything to that? Like, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely feels that way because it's, um, you know, they're, they're, they are old 
historical buildings um, and, and there's a ton of monuments and, and different memorials on campus and each one means something different. Um, Letting you guys live there. Yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, you're, like I said, all 4,000 midshipmen live in one building yeah. uh, with different wings and uh, it's the largest <laughs> dormitory in the world. I mean, yeah. Is there any uh, tomfoolery that go, goes on at oh, night? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, how do they keep 4,000, you know, late teens, early 20s kids from, from not fucking around or, or they just don't? Uh, I mean, there's rules and if you get caught, you get in trouble, but um, people, you know, are still going to do it. There's, yeah. um, there, there's ones that are fun, uh, harmless things, and then there's ones that aren't so harmless and yeah. fun. Can you give us a couple of examples of each or one yeah. of each? Um, so, we had these things called recons and it was usually done before a football game uh, where you and a couple of your friends would dress up in camouflage and paint your face up. And, and your goal was to go hang a, a sheet poster somewhere, you know, or um, we have a bell tower. Samson halls where history and English departments are. It's at the other end of Stribling walk from Bancroft hall. And uh, you have to break into the building and you have to, you know, scale up, you know, the tower, um, and, um, you know, ring the bell and hang up a poster and not get caught. Um, that kind of stuff was fun. That kind of stuff was, it, it, you know, it kind of helped us, uh, break up the monotony of academy life. Um, and then we had these, um, I don't, I don't know if they still have them, but they were, um, uniformed police officers and we called them Jimmy legs <laughs> and, uh, they would always try to catch you. And so they're on campus. Oh, they're on yeah. campus. And um, uh, now I think it might just be all MAs and Marines, the guard, uh, the academy. But uh, but yeah, these these guys would drive around campus. And, you know, if you were out past, you know, curfew or whatever, they turn the lights and try to grab you and you try to run away. And and I remember one year um, somebody uh, Jimmy Legs jumped out of their car and started chasing them. And one of their friends jumped in the car drove it into Tecumseh Court, which is right in the middle of, you know, Bancroft Halls where we have our big formation, and uh, turned the siren on, locked the door, and shut it. <laughs> that's it's, fucking great. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So that, that, was, that was kind yeah. of fun stuff we would do. Yeah. Um, like, dorm life-wise, I mean, is it, uh, can you kind of describe what that's like? I mean, I, I imagine, again, like this boarding school kind of, or like dead poet society kind of, yeah. kind of vibe almost. Is, is it that way where it's like... I assume that like personal items and stuff, there's not a lot of, the, of, of yeah. that kind of shit or it, it depends on what year you are. You know, if you're, if you're a plebe or a freshman, you have um, no personal items. There's no, you have no civilian clothes. It's all uniforms. Um, you know, you can't have, you know, with back then we didn't have cell phones, so that wasn't even an issue, but you couldn't have, uh, you know, music, you know, stuff like that. Um, but the way that, the way that it's, it's broken up, um, is you live with a company. So, you you know, the brigade of midshipmen is, is broken up in two regiments, and then within the regiments they have battalions, and each battalion has companies. And so your company is kind of like your family. And uh, you all live there. All, all grades are represented, so freshmen all the way to senior. And the seniors are obviously the leaders. You know, they're the, uh, you know, company commander, XO, uh, platoon commanders, um, <coughs> squad leaders, things like that. And uh, you would live in a room, and it depended on you know, sometimes luck of the draw, what year you were. But I know I started out in a, a six-person room, five-person room, um, 
and uh, did that for two years. And then I had a two person room my last two years and uh, our doors were not allowed to be locked. So that was anybody could just walk in at any time. Um, uh, obviously we had, it was co-ed, so there were male and female um, and you, you know, women couldn't walk in in men's rooms and vice versa. Um, How much fucking's going on there? There's got to be some, right? There's definitely some, but uh, it's not, you know, not one that's condoned. In fact, it's against the rules, and if you get caught, you get thrown out. Oh, really? Yeah. Holy shit, like one one time and you're done? Yep. Oh, wow. Yep. And people are still still willing to do it? Yeah, I mean, 18, 19, 20-year-old. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe as a 45-year-old lo- looking at it from, <laughs> like, the consequence yeah. isn't, isn't worth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, know. looking back at the stupid things I did, you know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. Um, all right, so I guess you know, kind of moving moving through your time there. Um, I guess I'm I'm curious if you can explain how how it works as far as you know when you show up. Hey, this is what I want to be. Like, how do you yeah how do you accomplish that? And like, are there kind of gatekeepers where it's like your grades have to be a yep. certain to qualify for this, or like how does that whole thing work? Yeah, I mean, there's cert- there certainly is because everything is based on class rank, and your class rank is is determined by your academic rank, uh, and then you have military um, scoring, and then you have physical as well, so how well you do on PRTs and stuff. Um, each each year you get exposed to e- you know each different community. So uh, your first year, let me think about this, first summer after your plebe year, uh, everyone does what they call YP crews, and that's where you kind of learn what it's like in the surface Navy. And they're YPs or Yard Patrol craft. They're unique to the Naval Academy. They're basically like miniature destroyers with no armament or anything. And uh, the midshipmen will do every job from, you know, helmsman, you're driving it, Lee helmsman controlling the throttles, um, navigator, um, you're, you're managing lines. I mean, all the normal seamanship stuff that you would expect a sailor to be able to do. And uh, we would usually have enlisted sailors on and officers that would basically be in command. We'd, we'd go as a flotilla from, from the Naval Academy through the Chesapeake Bay. And we'd go, we ended up in New York City. We ended up in Boston. And, um, and so that was your first exposure to the Navy, right? What it's like not at school. Um, and then you start to go out and, and branch out to see what the real Navy is like. So then you go to um, uh, a... a time on a navy ship somewhere so i went on an amphib out of san diego and i had a running mate who was a petty officer and i just follow him around saw what he did um and kind of learned what it was like in that that community Uh, you'd have opportunities that you could go on submarines um, for a summer cruise and uh, people would do full um you know month under the water on a submarine uh, and they just follow the running mate around they have uh, aviation cruises, so you can go to a squadron, uh, see what life in a squadron's like. Um, and are, are you picking, or do they say you again? Everything's based on your rank, so you okay. would you would choose like what you wanted. You'd rank them, and then based on your class rank, they'd assign you something. I got you. Um, for for me, I uh, for whatever reason decided I wanted to be a marine, and so I did. And this would be my uh, summer before my senior year. I did what was called Leatherneck, and it was a month in Quantico, um, and you're, you know, running around the woods, you're shooting guns, you're doing land navigation, um, you know, small unit tactics, uh, and then we would do mock wars, you know, where you're you're carrying. Uh, I, I was the I was the saw guy, so I was running around with that, and 
And um, it was fun. I had a blast. And then I spent a month um, with the FMF, with the Fleet Marine Force, uh, two weeks with a light armored reconnaissance battalion, um, driving driving LAVs, um, storming the beaches off of LCACs and, you know, hovercraft and stuff. That was pretty fun. And then two weeks with a Huey and Cobra squadron. Oh, wow. Uh, both in North Carolina. Uh, so I had that experience. And one, one guy... Um, he got invited to try out for the stay platoon, you know, the, um, the sniper platoon. So he, he made his own ghillie suit and, you know, got to work on stalking and stuff. And, yeah. um, so it was really, you kind of drove what you were interested in. Um, the guys that were gravitating towards special warfare, they would go to dive school, they'd go to jump school. They had a thing called mini buds, uh, where they would go out to Coronado and, and kind of get put through a, you know, a miniature, you know, training, um, and then right before your senior year, you rank what your choices are. And um, there are certain ones that required somebody from the community to say, yes, we want this person. Uh, NSW was one of them. The Marine Corps was one of them. But it didn't matter what it was. Um, like I had to sit down with a couple of pilots and explain to them why I wanted to be a pilot. At the end of the day, I decided had fun being a Marine for a summer, but that was it. I just want to fly jets. And so I put Navy pilot number one. And I had to explain to them my reasons, and uh, they said yes or no. And uh, do you remember your your number one reason? Number one reason is I I just wanted to fly. You know, I just wanted to fly fighter jets. Um, and you know, we were talking about the difference between Air Force, Marine, Navy jets. Uh, Marine pilots all go through the same flight school we go through. They wear the same wings, and so I kind of tell them they have a little bit of Navy stink on them. They're not real Marines. You know, they're just sort of fake Marines, and I've got a lot of really good friends that, that are Marine pilots, so I can say that, uh, but uh, but they're still, they're Marines first, yeah. right? And I, I just want to be a pilot first. Yeah, so. that makes sense. Uh, Grade-wise, like, even though they weren't great, they were good enough. Yeah, to I was right right in the middle of my class, and I wasn't even the last person to, to pick, you yeah. know, jets, so, yeah. or, or pilot, yeah. yeah. How many uh, students are, are in a class? A thousand? About a thousand, yeah. yeah. So it's not like most uh, high schools or colleges where there's way more underclassmen than upperclassmen. It's pretty Yeah, consistent. no, it stays pretty consistent. You start off, I think we start off like maybe eleven or 1,200 and then kind of whittle it down yeah. over the four years. Yeah. How, do you know about how many pilot slots there are? I, you know, it, it varies every year based on what the needs of the Navy are. It's, uh, but I'd say roughly half the class probably gets pilot. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. That's, or that's more than I would have expected, yeah. I guess. yeah. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Um, all right, so you you get picked up for that. How do they do? They just tell you at, at a certain point in your senior year. Or? Yeah, there's um, there's a selection day. At your company, so your class. That's uh, so all the all the seniors in your company will meet in what we call a company wardroom, and it was like our living room basically. And the company officer would read off our names and tell us what we got. And some people were really happy, and some people were really sad. I mean, I I seen you know grown men cry you yeah. know from those things they wanted to be a pilot and ended up as a swo yeah or wanted to be a marine and ended up as a swo that's yeah. even worse that's surface warfare officer i know some, yeah. sometimes i get hammered in the comments for using <laughs> using uh, tlas yeah <laughs> three-letter acronyms uh, which in itself is a tla yeah 
Oh, the irony. Um, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that would be, uh, it would be devastating. I would think like, you know, cause that's years and years yeah. of not just planning on something, but, um, you know, working towards something right. and, and the difference between flight school and being a surface warfare officer yeah. is pretty fucking significant, you know, very significant. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, that would be tough. You know, yeah, we ran into guys all the time that because there's not very many seal slots. There's like fucking ten of them, right? Um, you know, and and so most of the guys who want to be seals from the academy don't don't get those spots. At least know? initially, I mean, yeah. I know two of my good friends. Uh, they started off as surf force warfare officers and then ended up becoming seals. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, all right. So w at what point in your senior year is that? It's uh, it's in the first semester, oh, like okay. in the fall. So um, you would get like a little pin, you know, that you'd wear in your uniform to, to kind of signify what community you're going to. Yeah. Um, and then I can't remember how much later, but there's an actual service selection night. Maybe, maybe it was the same night. I can't remember. But um, all the service warfare officers would go by class rank and there'd be a big board with all the ships on the home ports and they could actually pick the ship that they're going to go to. Oh, really? Yeah. So you get some, some, uh, pick and I guess yeah, at yeah. least there. And, uh, for, for those of us that, that got pilot, we basically picked our flight school date. Yeah. So when you graduate, um, that's a pretty big deal. The graduation yeah. ceremony, right? Yeah, it was huge. Um, you, you see lots of uh, pictures and videos yeah. of, of that whole thing. It seems pretty awesome. Um, from from that day until you go to flight school, yeah. how long is that, and what are you doing in between? Yeah, uh, for me, um, I picked a pretty early flight school date. I think it was um, August, maybe August September. Uh, so we graduate at the end of May, and so I had um, had all summer, and you get one month basically of leave. And uh, so I, for me, I decided I wanted to drive around the. United States. So I left Annapolis and circled the country in my car for a month. Oh, really? Uh, it was pretty fun. Is, is that, no, do you get uh, that month of leave in between each year? Uh, uh, yeah, you do. Um, you, cause you, you have three, they call them blocks in between each year. Two of the blocks are reserved for training and then one block is reserved for leave. Yeah. It ends up being about a month. Um, I gave up my leave block my last, uh, summer there to, to learn how to sail and to, uh, we had these 44 foot sloops that we sailed from the Naval Academy up, up the East coast. Oh, that's cool. And so that was my job actually after I graduated, when I came back from driving around the, the country, I, I taught sailing to the new plebes. Oh really? Yeah. So, uh, I guess after that leave, did you have to do something between, um, when you, when your leave is over and when flight school starts or? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I came back, uh, to the Naval Academy, reported to the sailing center as an ensign. And, uh, I, I reported to the, gosh, I think maybe it was a captain, a Navy captain who was in charge of the sailing center and, and, uh, he owned all the, the new ensigns and, and we just, uh, worked every day teaching sailing, yeah. uh, to the plebes. And, and that was my daily job as an ensign for a couple months. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, all right. So flight school in August. Yep, drove down to Pensacola, started there. How how long is flight school? When it's all said and done, depends on the airplane you fly. But if you go jets, it's about two years after you, after starting to when you get your wings. Yeah, and uh, how many different uh, air airframe platforms are there to choose from? Uh, well, for me, it was different. So everyone starts the same. Everyone starts doing what's called API, aviation pre-flight. 
it's a it's a ground school. It's in Pensacola. It's all classroom work, and that's where you you first kind of get whittled down um, to determine where you're going to go to primary flight training. And uh, there's two places you go for primary flight training, either in Corpus Christi, Texas, or um, Whiting Field, which is in North Pensacola. Um, at the time, we flew the T-34C, t- uh, single-engine uh, turboprop, and that's you learn the basics of flying. I mean, how to talk on the radio, how to taxi, how to take off and land. Uh, we do some formation flying, some aerobatics, instrument flying. Um, and then based on your rank in that, then you choose or you get chosen, I guess, is a more appropriate way of saying it for what you're going to fly, um, whether it be jets, whether it be um, helicopters, maritime patrol, you know, like P3s or the P8s now, um, or uh, E2, C2, which are the um, the props that go on the carrier, you know, that provide um, uh, cargo or uh, airborne control. And so if you, at the time, if you went jets, you knew you were going to fly either the Tomcat, which, you know, is what I wanted to fly, to be honest with you, because, you know, I grew up watching Top Gun and, yeah. you know, I wanted to relive those. I mean, it was about to be getting phased out. Yeah, and that was, that was part of my process. Thought process was, you know, at least if I flew it, you know, I'd know I'd transition to something else, but I, at least I could do it. Yeah. Um, you could fly the Hornet. You could fly the Super Hornet, which was just starting to come on online. Uh, you could fly the Prowler, which was electronic attack. And the uh, S3 Viking was the other one. Yeah. So I knew I was going to get one of those if I, if I went jets. And then obviously, you know, helicopters could be broken down, uh, different you know, H60s or the, uh, uh, they had the 53s, 46s, I think, at the time. Yeah. For, like, from a normal flight school student's perspective, are fighter jets kind of what everybody wants or, or what most? Yeah, I mean, I think if... I'd say most people probably do want that, but I think a lot of people are afraid to say they want that because they didn't want to be let down. So you'd have a lot of people say, I just want to fly. I just want to fly. And uh, to a degree that was true, you know, but um, I remember flying um, my on-wing instructor. So the person that I flew mostly with in the T-34, he was an E-6 pilot, which is the Takamo, you know, the, um, they, you know, they, they take off out of somewhere in Oklahoma and they circle the skies and dangle an antenna to talk to submarines and, and I was like, man, that sounds like a pretty boring job, <laughs> you know, and, and you're in the middle of the country. You're nowhere near the ocean. This isn't really a Navy job. So I knew I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so I, I pretty much just put it out there that, yeah, I want to fly fighters. I want to go on aircraft carriers. Yeah. Well, um, how, how big is your class? Uh, about 30 to 40 people. Okay. And, and what percentage breakdown go fighter jets of, of that? Uh or numbers wise, maybe maybe four or five. Oh, really? Yeah, that few, huh? Yeah. It, again, it depends. I mean, there were some classes where um, they just didn't have any jet spots available, so the number one guy could be Chuck Yeager reincarnated, and he wouldn't get a spot. Wow. You know, man. Do you know how many spots your class had? It was about that. It was oh, about four or, four or five. Yeah. Um, do you have to be at the top of your class to get the jet spot? Yeah, I usually do. Yeah, they have what's called an NSS score, and uh, all your grades for flight school even just gets broken down, and, and you're ranked. And there was a cutoff; you had to be above a certain score to to qualify for jets. Uh, but but even to really be the person to pick it, you know, you had to be at the top. Yeah, were you at the top? Uh, yeah, I was either one or two. Yeah, <laughs> that's badass. Yeah. Um, so how how long is the uh, API? API is. Uh, 
uh, it's about a month. Okay. Yeah, and there's uh, every phase they had what they called pools, you know, where like we check into Pensacola and they say, hey, your your class isn't going to start for a month, so you're in a pool for a month. And uh, some people, all they had to do was check in every day. They just had to show up to base, say, I'm here, I'm alive. Roger that. You can go home. And so I had a lot of friends that would they do that every morning. They'd go to the beach and they'd surf or, you know, hang out and enjoy Pensacola. Um, you had some people that had to work in the main <coughs> office on the quarter deck there. And, you know, um, I mean, you're, you're in the pool um, and it kind of depends on how the, the pipeline is going. Right. So if 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 a, if uh, primary is getting backed up, bad weather or whatever, they're just not getting the, the students through fast enough. They might not have a class that they're going to be taking guys from API. So we're going to, we're going to slow you guys down in API. And so then you, you, once you class up, you run through your class and then you quickly select to where you're going to go to primary, you move there and they're like, okay, we're going to wait for a couple months or whatever. And that's, it seemed to be every single phase was that way. Yeah. Um, so once you went from the, the basic API, that's about a month. Uh, you went to fighters after that. So I went to primary flight training in the T-34. Okay. Um, so I, I moved to Corpus Christi, uh, moved there right around Halloween, and um, didn't start class until after the first of the year. Oh, wow. So I was in a pool for, for a while. Um, and then I finished that primary flight training uh, around May. Oh, really? So it's yeah. five months? Yeah, it's about yeah. that primary. And then from there, that's where you select jets or where you helicopters or whatever. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so in that five months, uh, you're learning the T-34, but at that point, you could even switch over to helicopters. Well, everyone goes through the T-34. Okay. Yeah, and then I, so everybody has fixed wing time, even the helicopter pilots. And then yeah. from, from once you finish primary, then you pick helicopters or jets okay. or whatever. Okay. So from primary, then you stayed there, or you went back to Pensacola? Or? I moved to Kingsville, Texas, okay. uh, which is pretty close to Corpus Christi, but it's the middle of nowhere, and uh, that's where the jet training is. It was either there or Meridian, Mississippi, uh, where the two jet training bases. Yeah, and how long is that? It's about a year. The training itself is about a year, so okay. you know, not inclusive of uh, you know any kind of pools or anything. Yeah. So I moved to Kingsville, uh, it had to have been around May, and I finished up, I got winged the next May. Okay. So in that year training, can you describe what, what all you go through? I mean, yeah. Um, and how, like how big the class is and what your days are like. Yeah, the class is about, you know, 20, 20 guys or so. Um, every day is different. I mean, you start off with ground school. So in every, every single airplane you fly, uh, whether it be the T-34 or the 737 I fly now, you start off learning about the systems and how the plane works. And um, and there's tests, and, and you have to learn emergency procedures, which is where all that brief points training at the Naval Academy came in handy because you have to be able to, you know, memorize this stuff verbatim and recite it verbatim. Um, so you, you do the ground school, and then uh, familiarization was the phase, they called it, and that's where you, you're learning basic takeoff, landing, how to fly in the pattern, landing pattern, um, just how to how to fly the jet, plain and simple. Um, you do a basic um, navigation. Uh, so they would put a, a hood over your canopy so you can't look outside and you're just looking at your instruments and you've got a chart. And, and so you have to navigate from point A to B, you know, without looking outside. So again, simulating bad weather. 
which for me I thought was was a really cool experience when you know you'd, you'd fly an approach somewhere and the instructor would tell you to take off the hood and you look up and there's a runway right in front of you and you're yeah. like oh man this actually works it's kind of cool um, yeah, that'd, be a, that'd be fucking dicey I would think yeah it would be hard to trust uh trust everything yeah. at first at, at least at first it is for sure and the the difference from going you know when I first went to jets everything happened so much faster you know I mean the first flight I remember I don't think I actually crawled my way back into the cockpit until we'd landed. You know, I was still, I was just so far behind the jet the whole time because yeah. it just moves so much faster, you know? Yeah. Um, but once you get used to that, you start thinking faster and you, you start uh, thinking ahead more and knowing what's coming up. And, um, and I guess that's why they put you through each phase is kind of built so that you you're building on the last one, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, you do all the navigation stuff. Uh, we we did uh, low level navigation, so you're learning how to now, you know, at high high speeds, you know, 500 feet and below, how to spot different terrain features and how to navigate. Um, we we'd fly full routes. Usually, it was in the so- southwest of the United States, so Arizona, you know, California, that area. Um, we did um, we did bombing, so just learning how to just, you know. No, no, no bombing computers, no smart weapons, just pointing the nose of the dirt, dropping a bomb and trying to hit a target. I can only assume that's fucking difficult. Um, can, can you talk about that? Like the, the challenges yeah. and, and what that's like? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so the, the very basic bombing, uh, building block that we, we, we build off everything off of is called circle the wagons. And you're basically just circling a target. And, uh, and you imagine an inverted cone, right? Or I guess just a cone with a pointy end at the target and you're on the edge of it. And at some point you, you would have a roll-in heading, we'll call it north. So I wanna aim at the target pointed north. And so you'd learn how to um, overbank your aircraft. So you're almost upside down, pulling down to the target, rolling out. And now you're, you're having to look at your airspeed. You're having to look at um, how much G's you're putting on the jet because it all affects the bomb's trajectory. Sure. You know? and, um, and, and then the altitude, obviously, is the big one because if you if you pickle too early, you know, the bomb's not going to hit the target. You pickle too late, um, you know, and if it was a real bomb, it could, you know, you could be caught in the frag pattern when you pull off. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that you're looking at and uh, you're just, we call it the wire, and you're just flying down the wire um, waiting for that right moment where the, everything just lines up, the airspeed, the altitude, yeah, the G's, everything. I, mean, I can only imagine it varies person to person, but is there a, a number of repetitions that it takes to, to get to where you, you feel like, I guess for you personally, where you kind of had yeah. it figured out, where you, where you were accurate enough? Yeah, I, I don't remember that far back um, on, on how long it took me to feel that way. I know I felt very uncomfortable for the first several flights, and we would usually go out with 12 bombs, 12 practice bombs. And uh, the first couple were, you know, uh, just slinging them all over the place. You know, it's just like shooting a gun. You know, if you're, if you're, you know, pulling the trigger the wrong way, it's going to cause the barrel to move one way or the other. Well, if you're put, start putting on the G when, you, you know, the bomb comes off, you're going to sling the bomb. It's going to go far. Um, and so it's just kind of learning how to, how to trust the process, how to trust yeah. the numbers that you've got and um and not not rush it because you see the ground coming up at you and yeah is is there a average elevation that you're typically dropping from or does it totally vary it it depends on how steep the dive is so um 
I can't remember all the exact diagrams now, but you know, we're in the uh, 10 to 15,000 range for maybe a 30 degree dive. Um, and you know, 20, the tw next one would be down would be a 20 degree dive. It's a little more shallow. Uh, probably like, you know, upper like eight, you know, to 10,000 and then 10 degree dive is just super shallow and that's a, a lot lower altitude, you know, like five, 6,000 feet. Is that the lowest you'd probably drop? free balling it that way yeah most likely I mean, they sometimes we would do they call level lay downs um where you're basically just you're 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 level and you're just pickling it and yeah um but that's totally the, the steeper you are the more accurate you are it's just like you know if you imagine you're you have a gun and you're pointing it at a target um if it, you know if you're if you're shooting well, it's like kentucky windage versus yeah yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because, you know, the gravity obviously is going to play with it. So the more shallow you are, the more the gravity is going to pull the ball, bomb down. Yeah. If you're pointing down at the ground, the gravity is pulling it to the target. Yeah. So you're way more accurate with yeah. the nose pointed where it needs to go, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of looking at it from, say, like a World War II historical perspective, which is how, you know, most of the bombs were dropped. Yeah. Down, like, what would you say that your level of accuracy at your very best was like, could you hit like, what's the smallest size target you think you could hit? Uh, I mean, we, you know, we would train, um, especially as we got further on in our process. And once I was bombing with F-18, um, I got to the point where I could drop a dumb bomb, you know, and it would hit the turret of a tank every single time. No shit. Yeah. Wow. That's fucking impressive. Yeah. Um, I know you're using dummy bombs. Uh, when you're using real bombs, what, what is the payload capacity? Like how many of them can you take and how big are they? Yeah. And the F-18, uh, we can carry four 2000 pound bombs pretty comfortably. Um, in, in common surprising. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, everything is based on how much fuel we need too, because, you know, if you're putting a bomb on a, on a pylon, it's not going to be a fuel tank. So you, typically our, our combat load, we would have two external tanks, one would be on the center line, one would be on a wing pylon, and then we would have three additional pylons that we could carry bombs on. So um, we usually carried three bombs. Um, a thousand pound bombs, I think, were probably the norm in combat. And a lot of that was because if you didn't drop them, you might be too heavy to land at the carrier. Oh, okay. Because we have a maximum weight we could, we could land with. So, so if that's the case, like, are you dropping them in the ocean before yeah. you land? Yeah. No shit. Yep. And and detonating or not detonating? Uh, they'd be they'd be dropped safe. Yeah, that's fucking wild. I I can only imagine similar to cars and motorcycles where even a little bit of weight makes a big fucking difference when you're really pushing it. Yeah. Uh, I, I assume that when you're flying that taking off, like if if you were trying to air to air combat, yeah, another jet with a full loadout, like that's a huge hindrance, correct? Yeah, and that's why if you <clears throat> do get you know, one of the first things that we did if we got into like air-to-air -air engagement for real is we would um, pickle everything off the jet. Everything. Tanks, weapons, I mean, other than air-to-air -air missiles, which would be the only things that wouldn't jettison. Yeah. You would do that. Wow. Damn, that's fucking wild. And, uh, I mean, is it like night and day difference in terms of how it, how the plane handles? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, the air-to-air -air missiles, What? Uh, how big are they and how many of those do you typically carry? Uh, in combat, we would fly with one uh, AIM-120, which is the uh, active uh, radar missile, advanced medium-range air-to-air missile. And we carry, we carry that what we call the cheek station. So on the F-18, um, on either side of the fuselage or these two stations that we would, we would carry, uh, usually a targeting pod, and then we would carry um, the AMRAM. 
And then we'd carry two AIM-9 Sidewinders, which are the, uh, the heat-seeking missiles on our wingtips. And how explosive weight-wise, what, what do those have? 40-pound uh, warheads, maybe. Yeah. Um, not much. I mean, you're... Yeah, you don't need much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm getting a little over my skis in terms of asking about some <laughs> of the combat stuff. Uh, throttling myself back just a second. Um, the, the later parts of flight school, um, po post-bombing, what do those consist of? Yeah, um, we would do, uh, let's see, we did tactical formations, so learning how to fly in formation with another aircraft in a tactical way, which we're always providing mutual support to our women. So learning how to um, maneuver that. Uh, we would fly what's called combat spread, which is about a mile apart, um, and you're, you're directly even with the other guy. And so when you would turn, let's say, 90 degrees, you know, one way, if you're flowing south and you want to turn east, then the guy on the outside, the guy on the west, would uh, would turn first, and you'd wait for him to kind of point at you, and then you would turn, and so you'd end up in the same formation. Uh, it's a lot of you know angles and geometry and stuff that people who are good with math could probably understand a little bit better than I could. It was just for me, I was like, okay, yeah, that's about right, you know. Yeah. Um, so you learn how to fly a tactical formation. You learn how to do aerobatics in formation. Uh, a lot of that not a real tactical application for it's just kind of learning how to um, control the jet better and be more fine, you know, more in tune with it. Um, we would do aerial gunnery. So um, there would be a jet that would tow a banner and you would uh, fly a pattern. The T-45 didn't have guns, but when they were flying the A-4s that actually had a gun, they would actually shoot at the banner uh, with actual guns. We just kind of simulated it. Uh, and then we would do air combat maneuvering, uh, dogfighting, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, we do a 2v1 um, where two students would fight one instructor. How, how big, I mean, obviously you see Top Gun, like that's kind of the, the deal with it. Yeah. It seems like from a reality standpoint, like the likelihood of, of actually combating other airplanes in that fashion in a real-world application, are, are it's pretty slim. It right? is, yeah. I mean, yeah. and I know historically, like in Vietnam, there were, there was a lot of it. Uh, you know, even during the Cold War, um, prior to that, and and what have you, like that was a big focus. But if you like percentage wise, is 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 it still a significant percentage of the training, or it, um, it is a significant percentage percentage of the training because that's what our um, our big mission is, right? I mean, if if you are an F eighteen pilot on a carrier, um, and and there's aircraft coming to attack the carrier you got to be able to kick you their ass, be able to kick their ass yeah, yeah. And, and we learned that lesson right in vietnam um the 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 common thought was with radar with radar missiles you were never going to dogfight that's why top gun was founded because navy pilots were getting their asses kicked and they said we've forgotten everything we learned in world war ii yeah we forgot everything we learned in korea and so they started the navy fighter weapons school to teach dogfighting yeah um before we get into that um the, the the finishing process of of uh, flight school, I guess. Yeah. What, what's the last part of it? Go into the carrier. You go to the aircraft carrier and land for your first time by yourself. How fucking dicey was that? <laughs> yeah, pretty. Well, so for me, it was uh, my experience was a little bit unique in a sad way. Unfortunately, um, the my on wing instructor, the person that taught me how to fly uh, the T forty five, he um, on the first day of our detachment, he was leading a group of students out to the boat. Um, it was a job that I had later as an instructor. It was called um, uh, 
called a, a lead safe. The lead safe would take the students out, basically say good luck, drop them off, and then they would they would practice their landings. And uh, he was leading students out and and crashed into the water and died. Oh shit! And I wasn't flying that day. I was scheduled to go the next morning, and that night they had a you know all officers meeting. And they called everyone together and they said, hey. You know, we lost this jet today. Two people died. There was a guy in his back seat. And um, I was in my head, I'm thinking, well, they're going to cancel this, right? We're just going to go back to Kingsville and uh, we'll come back another time. And they looked at me like, Stuart, you're ready to go in the morning? I was like, wait a second, the guy just died. And, but that was like my introduction to naval aviation and, you know, combat aviation. Uh, you don't stop because someone dies. You know. Do you know what happened? Why it, why it happened? Yeah. So the guy in his back seat, he I think he was an A ten pilot, so he was just going out for a good deal to get a ride out to the carrier, which we did quite often. And um, our ejection seats, um, you wear uh, harnesses that go uh, right above the knee, and then right above the uh, boot on the ankle, and those are attached to lines that when you eject, they're designed to pull your your ankles or your feet back so that you don't hit the dash and, you know, lose a foot. Um, and they're designed to pull your thighs down to the eject ejection seat so that you don't get seat slapped because the ejection seat comes out so fast that it could, like, break a femur or something. And um, they have part of those, uh, there's, like, a little tail that's supposed to go straight down. And I think his was in um, so that when the instructor put the stick uh, over to the side to enter the brake, which is how you come in to land on the carrier and you start your turn to downwind that they think that stick got caught in the guy's back the guy in the back seat in his harness and so he couldn't right the jet so it just kept rolling when he wanted to stop it and it wouldn't and so they tried ejecting but they were inverted and so they both ejected into the water yeah that's fucking terrible yeah um so you know you get a, a crash course no pun intended in how you have to just fucking yeah. continue the mission yep compartmentalize um, so you go right, right back into it. What was that next day? Like, yeah, I mean, I can't remember anything up until the time I landed. I mean, I was just operating on stem power at that point. Just yeah. everything I'd ever been taught muscle memory is a real thing because I, I took off, I joined a flight of four, flew out to the carrier, entered the brake, somehow miraculously put my gear down, put my hook down and stopped. And I'll never forget, um, they, they taxi you clear of the landing area and they, they chalk and chain you, and then they hook a fuel uh, hose up to your jet and pump you full of gas. It's the first thing they do. And that was the first chance you get to, you know, you, you can kind of save your seat, take your mask off, take a drink of water. And I remember looking around thinking, man, I am in a jet on a boat in the middle of the ocean. This is the craziest thing I've ever done. Yeah. I mean, the just the thought of, of what goes into and kind of what's actually taking place when an airplane is landing on an aircraft carrier is, is hard to even wrap your fucking mind around. And, yeah. and for those listening with, I would just ask you to think about it for a second. Can you kind of give us just the, the reader's digest version of, of what all is going on yeah. in the things that you have to think about and, and, and the conditions that you have to kind of manage and control to, to actually pull that off. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like I said earlier, the air force pilots know where they're, they're, uh, runway is going to be we don't we have to find it so once you find the carrier that's great but it's not stationary it's moving it's moving through the water and it depends on how much wind, natural wind there is how fast it's moving so um i'm just going to throw a number out there we want to have 20 knots um down the we call it down the angle or 
down the landing area. Um, and if it's natural wind, the, the, the boat could just be sitting there uh, stationary, not moving. Um, but if it's, if it's a calm day, there's not a lot of wind, it has to make the wind itself. So it's going 20 knots through the water. And on modern aircraft carriers, the landing area is canted 10 degrees from the uh, center line of the ship. So when the ship is making its own wind and is driving, and you can tell that by looking at the wake, you can see how big the wake is, um, you know that your landing area is going to constantly be drifting right. So when you roll out on final and you're looking at the landing area, you have to constantly put little wing dips into the right because it's moving away from you. You have to keep kind of chasing it. I mean, so all the numbers aside from where you are supposed to be when you're a beam, the carrier, how you're supposed to turn, what altitude, airspeed, all that stuff, it's constantly changing based on what the conditions are of the ocean that day. And um, uh, usually as a student, you go out on really nice days. I mean, they're not, not going to put you out in bad weather, but once you're flying your you know, F-18 or whatever, um, it could be pretty rough, you know, pitching decks. Um, you know, I've seen the uh, the propellers of the carrier come out of the water before. It's been yeah. pitching, pitching so much. And in that case, you're really relying on the LSOs. There's guys called landing signal officers that stand right next to the landing area and are watching you and are telling you, you know, add power, you know, uh, you know, they, they would give you corrections for your lineup. Um, so those guys are saving your ass. Yeah, oh yeah. And they're the air traffic sure. controllers of. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're the ones that uh, you have complete faith in because all your visual senses might be telling you one thing and you, you have to trust them. Yeah. Um, there was, there was one time, um, where I could not see the ship at all. So when, you know, you saw the movie Top Gun, they say, call the ball, right? There's a, which, there's, which means what exactly? Yeah. So there's a lens, uh, to the left of the landing area and they called the eye flaws, the improved Fresno lens optical landing system. Like everything has an acronym, right? Um, and there's a yellow ball, right? Sits right in the middle and there's green lights on either side that that tells you that's your glide slope. That's the ideal glide slope to land on. So if the ball is above those green lights, you're high. If it's below it, you're low. And if you're too low, it turns red, which means that's dangerous. Um, and really rough conditions, they would manually control that. The LSOs would move a handle to tell you, you know, hey, I want you to think you're high. You may not actually be high, but I want you to think you're high based on what the ship is doing in terms of pitching deck. Um, so if you don't see the ball, you would say Clara. Uh, and the whole reason for that is that you, you need to tell the LSOs, I don't know, am I high or low? And they'll immediately come back and tell you. Um, if you don't see the lineup for whatever reason, maybe um, – uh, it's usually a you know painted line, but maybe after you know s several months on deployment, it gets the paint gets chipped away, or the sun angle might be hitting. You can't tell where you are. You'd say Clara lineup, and if you can't see the ship, you'd say Clara ship. And so there was one time I came back, and you know they tell you three quarters of a mile, call a ball, Clara ship, and the LSO's response was, "You sound good, keep it coming." And you're just like, "Oh man!" <laughs> so I mean, your life is in that dude's hands. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's wild. So when they say Roger Ball, that just means you can see it and everything's fine, yep. right? Okay. Yep. Is there anything else that could be said other than those three things? Um, yeah, you, you would say, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's uh, Clara. Or you'd say, um, you would say the ball. You would say your fuel state. Um, or you'd say Clara, Clara ship, Clara lineup. That's all you say. Yeah. And then Did the LSOs come back and say Roger Ball, or they tell you you're high, you're low. Yeah. Did you ever buzz the fucking tower? 
Oh yeah, but yeah. you'd ask for it. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's the thing, right? Yeah, like you're gonna ask for it, and oh yeah, and if they say no and you do it anyway, it's straight out of Top Gun. Th- that what? would be a big big no no. Yeah. yeah, like you'd get fired for that. Yeah, and we typically would not do it because uh, uh, you're worried about you know there could, there could be a helicopter there, or there could yeah. be you know they yeah. could be testing the Sea Whiz, which is the, you know the yeah. close in weapon system. You don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Um, though the uh, LSOs you said. I know it, officers in the name. Are they actual officers? They or are. They yeah, they're other pilots. They're, oh, okay. It's actually like one of their duties. So they, they would fly, and then one day they're an LSO. So did you do that sometime? I did not, no. no. Um, all right, so that's kind of the, the final phase of, of flight school, right? Yeah. Once you get, get through all of that, you get your wings. Is that on the same level big deal wise i assume as graduation at the academy or like for for me getting pinned with a trial like the big yeah, it's, deal. yeah it's a big deal yeah. it's a big deal they they do what they call a soft winging thing so after your last flight usually it's coming back from the carrier they'd rip your name tag off you know and they'd put one on um that has the wings on it and they'd, they'd punch it on you know they can't really do much these days but i, I was gonna ask so they, they pounded your wings in yeah. right? i mean i got the same with the trident uh, I mean, for us, it was like, uh, you know, there's about 200 guys at a, at a SEAL team, and we go through the uh, the ceremony, you know, mm-hmm. first thing in the morning at, at muster at like 7.30. And uh, and then for the rest of that day, it's, it's always, it's, or at least then it was a Friday. Now it's totally different. But um, for that entire day, like you're running around in PT gear, a brown T-shirt and the yeah. silky catch-me-fuck-me shorts and and you've got this pin in, in your chest, and anybody who's already a trident wearer can come pull it out yeah. and punch or elbow it or headbutt it or you know whatever yeah. back in and, and keep hitting it a bunch of times. The whole fucking day, you're running around that way, and I don't I don't think they can even do one fucking tack in anymore, you know, which to me is fucking lame. Right, right. But uh, anyway, so all right, so you get your wings, your blood wings, I assume they yeah. they call them, right? Yep. From there, uh, how how quickly are you? detached to wherever you're going and did you find out before where you were going how does that work? no it's after the, so the um it's right before the wing ceremony they would they would tell you where you're going mm. uh, not just what what platform you're going to but what training squadron so for me i got f-18s i didn't get F- f-14s and the reason i didn't get f-14s is because i didn't do as well at the boat as i wanted to so I was at the top of my class, but you had to, if you're flying Prowlers or F-14s, you had to be a really good um, flyer at the carrier. And are, yeah, Are they harder to navigate or harder to land and take off? Yeah, on? they are. Yeah. yeah, the F-14, because the wingspan was so wide in the landing area, so, you know, there's not a lot of room for error. Yeah. So they wanted guys that were very competent at the boat, and I was not as a student. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's wild. Yeah. Were you bummed to not get the F-14s, or was it like, oh, I'm still an F-18 pilot? I, I was bummed, but obviously the F-18 is a really good Constellation prize. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, one thing we didn't talk about is the takeoff and the, yeah. and the violence that exists with uh, with taking it off. I, I, so I, I spent uh, a fair bit of time on the Constellation. We did a number of uh, several-week um, fleet exercises before we deployed on it. And so, uh, you know, Certainly was around the the aircraft carrier culture and yeah. was around for flat ops a, a bunch of fucking times and uh, I was always really fascinated by just the the physics of being able to launch a fucking plane off of that short uh, you know of a landing strip or a takeoff strip yeah. uh, with that catapult. I don't really know shit about it other than we slept right below it and it was loud <laughs> as fuck. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you talk to? 
I guess kind of the, the capability or, or I don't know if there's an amount, you know, Jesus Christ, I can't talk, an amount of force that's quantified that, that you know of? or Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I can't put it in, in numbers. I don't know uh, because, you know, normally we talk about G-forces and those are going straight down and this is straight back. I mean, yeah. the acceleration is, is uh, pretty incredible. Um, you could look at any funny car, you know, um, uh, Tesla plaid, make it feel anything. like a bitch. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the catapult shot is just, you know, the, the craziest uh, thing. Uh, it is always fun except at night when you can't see, because when you come off the end, you, all you see is pitch black. You don't know if you're pointed at the water or pointed at the yeah. sky. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, the first few times it's head back against the headrest and you're just kind of holding on. Um, but then, you know, you start to get comfortable with it yeah. over your career. And but so, I mean, it's, uh, it's attached to what on the plane? So, um, it, 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 it's attached to what's called a launch bar. So on the nose landing gear, there's this bar that lowers and, and rests into this shuttle. It's called the shuttle sits on the top of the flight deck. There's a lot of stuff underneath the flight deck, you know, that where they, the steam, you know, the catapult and all that system. I don't know how it all works. I just know that I put my launch bar down when it rests in the shuttle. Um, behind the landing gear, there's something called a, a holdback fitting that that, uh, that it's attached to the gear and then it's attached to the flight deck and it holds you in place uh, so that you can go full power. And there's a little collar that's designed to break as soon as the catapult's fired. So one of the last things they do is they tell you to run up you know, to full power. You run up to full power and you're just sitting there and you know the engines are roaring and then you know, you salute, and at some point, the the catapult fires, the holdback breaks, and you just take off. Yeah. Do you know the number of feet that it's taking off in? I think it's like 120 feet or something like that. That's mind-boggling. Yeah. And do you know what speed you're going, uh, you know, a, as you cross the threshold of, of yeah. off the curve? It, it, it depends on your weight. It depends on what you're carrying. But we always looked for three digits. We're always looking for something over 100 knots. So in 120 feet, you're going over 100, well over 100 miles an hour. Yeah, man, that's fucking, that's badass. Um, it was, I was, um, excuse me. I think the thing I was most surprised by, we had a, an opportunity, myself and a couple other platoon mates, to stand. I don't know what part of the bridge you would call it, but there was just this little like exterior. Yeah, vultures deck. Right. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, we were standing out there watching F-18s land and take off. Yeah. And the, and the, as we got out there, the very first one when it landed, uh, almost made me throw up. It was so fucking loud. Like I, I was, it was like getting the wind knocked out of you. Like yeah. I, I could not fucking believe how loud it was standing there that, that close to it. I mean, like all of us kind of looked at each other, like we'd all just been punched in the face. Like right. it was mind blowing. Um, and then at, at that point we're covering our ears and like, dude, this is fucking terrible. But, <laughs> but it was such a cool experience to be able to stand there and watch, you know, kind of one of those moments where you, you take a step back and it's like, you look out and there's ocean in every direction. Yeah. Um, you know, there's fucking fighter jets taking off and, and we're, you know, three seals standing there watching just like, dude, what, how did we get here? Right. You know, it's just like, holy shit. Uh, it was a really neat moment though. Um, anyway, so uh, all right, so you finish that up, you figure out you're going to F-18s. Yeah. Uh, did you go out to California, or you were all East Coast? Yeah, East Coast. So I went to Virginia Beach, okay. uh, VFA 106. It was Oceana, the, uh, right? Yeah, Oceana, yeah. yep. 
Um, what was it like checking in there and, and getting into the full swing of things, like from the time you checked in until you actually deployed and, and the training and all that? Well, it's, you know, going from being a student, uh, before you get your wings, it's very rigid. You know, instructors were sir, and, you know, they, they were lieutenants, and I was a ensign, and uh, it was very, very rigid. Once you earn your wings, it's treated a little bit like you're now one of the boys, right? So you show up to Virginia Beach, um, and these are, are again, lieutenants. Um, they've done a sea tour, and this is they're coming back to now teach you how to fly the F-18. And uh, they're like, oh, you're one of us now, you know. But you're still, they're still instructors. They're still teaching you. Um, so again, I had pool, right? So my pool was I'd show up, and I worked with the LSOs. So uh, as, the, as the F-18 guys were getting ready to go to, to the, their carrier qualifications, I would go out to what was called Fentress. It was outlying field, and uh, I would watch the landings. and And my job was to write down the LSO's grades because every single landing is graded by the LSO. They tell you everything you did. You know, high, high start. You know, not enough power in the middle. Come down and close. You know, fly through up at the ramp or something. And you, there was shorthand. You had to learn it. And so I'd go out there late at night and I'd okay write the pass. Okay, okay. And uh, I did that for it had to have been a couple months. Um, you know, at one point the LSO was like, I'm bored, you you do it. You know, he just laid down on the couch in the little shack in the runway and I was like, Roger Ball. <laughs> you know, like, um, this was late nineties? This was, no, this was 2001. Okay. Yeah, 2001. So um, I actually had my first uh, simulator in the F-18 on 9-11. Oh, no shit. Yeah, so I'd finally oh. classed up and uh, go into the sim building and uh, on the drive in, I'd heard about the you know one plane crash, and I thought, man, weather must be bad up there. You know, you, know, you can't miss the World Trade Center. And then I walked into the sim building, and there was a, a TV sitting there in the lobby, and I saw that second plane hit, and I was like, holy oh, shit. Yeah, shit, we're under yeah. attack. Yeah. yeah. So let me uh, derail our conversation <laughs> for a quick second. Um, the capability, competency, training that it would take – to pull that off from your perspective of having done yeah. so many different uh, aspects of, of piloting, um, is that a huge feat for them to have gone from not being pilots to going through training and, and getting to where they could, you know, t removing the the difficulty of taking a plane yeah. over? I mean, at, at that time, obviously, right. it wasn't nearly as difficult. Um, but th that's not that difficult of a thing for them. No, to I don't think so. I mean, it... it to, to me, finding the towers would be would be tricky, wouldn't it? That would be the difficult thing. But if you had good weather and they did, they're they're pretty easy to see. Okay. Yeah, I mean they're they're you know I've flown into New York City several times. I have actually <clears throat> trip there next week, um, and uh, it's it's easy to see. Manhattan stands out, yeah. you know, because there's so many tall buildings. Yeah. Um, I think. Uh, you can and you can see it in the videos. You can see they're they're making a turn, you know, at the last second because you know things you can misjudge. Like as you gain airspeed, you're going to gain lift, and so as they're pointed down, they're probably gaining lift, and it's it's affecting their trajectory, and so they're having to make corrections at the last second. And yeah. you know it's it's heart heart wrenching to think about all the that would go into doing something like that. But but no, I don't think it. I don't think it would yeah. take much. The Pentagon would have been tougher. I think the Pentagon would have been tougher, just harder to see. Um, and it's on the ground. Yeah, and it's yeah. flat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was just curious. Again, having not talked to a pilot, it, to me, it would it would seem knowing nothing about flying a plane that that would be hard. But yeah. Um, all right. So, 
first time in a in an F eighteen simulator is nine eleven. So prior to that, you'd never been in one. Uh, no. Yeah. No. So everything that you were landing and taking off in the aircraft carriers were the T thirty four. That was a T forty five. T forty. Yeah. So the jet training was T forty five. Okay. Um, how how long do you spend doing simulators and shit before you actually get in one? Uh, not that long in the F eighteen. It's uh, it's pretty quick. Um, I think you just have emergency procedures that you're having to learn. Uh, but most of the training is done in the jet, and yeah. each phase there's different uh, simulators. So whether it be you know air to air, you're learning how to use the radar, so you practice in the simulator, and then you go do it in the jet. Um, air to ground, you're learning how to select the weapon systems, how to manipulate the weapons computers and everything. Um, so, so the simulators is one thing you never get away from. Um, even later on in the fleet, you're always doing something. But uh, I was, you know, maybe maybe a couple weeks in the sim. Okay. And are are they realistic enough to where? I mean, obviously they help or they wouldn't use them. Right. But like, is it super realistic where it's like, man, this is fucking crazy how how real this is? Yeah, it's it, they've gotten a lot better too. But at the time, I mean, the the cockpit itself feels like a real cockpit. You're, all the switches are exactly the same. The displays are the same. Um, the visuals would be the one thing that have improved over time. Um, when I first started flying, we had, I can't remember what they were called, weapons trainers or something, WTTs. Looks like an Atari. It was a dome. It was a whole dome that you would sit in a cockpit. You actually close a canopy with glass and everything. And you could, you know, 360 degrees, you could look all over. Um, but the graphics were terrible, Yeah. you know. And then now they've they've changed it. There's st- It's still a dome, but it's uh, uh, with flat panels. And they're all high definition. I mean, the graphics are incredible yeah do they are the simulators do they have g-forces and shit like no. that no so no. um from all of the flight training that you'd done up until that point i'm curious your first time actually getting in an f-18 and flying it was it like going from a ford focus to a yeah, fucking yeah. ferrari or that what? was fucking cool yeah <laughs> i mean it's you know there's something about walking out to a gray jet because training aircraft were all orange and white yeah. because you know they wanted you to they wanted to see you. You're yeah. a student. We want to see where you are. When you crash, we need to be able to find right? you. Right, but uh, but when you walk out to a gray jet and you know that it's got a gun, it's got you know the ability to shoot missiles and bombs, um, and that was a cool experience. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, to me, that would be. I can imagine that same kind of moment of being like, holy fuck, like this is, yeah. this is actually happening. Yeah. Um, what, what was your first flight like? Is uh, it just like a familiar? Yeah, they do the familiarization with they, you, I know you go, uh, you, you go out to the, the warning areas off the coast and they, they teach you how to get there to and from and the different rules. Um, they te- they take you to the bombing ranges to give you a tour of that. Uh, you do a lot of landing pattern work because, I mean, everything in the Navy is based on landings, yeah. you know, because they could say you could go, uh, you know, shack your target, shoot down two enemy MiGs, but if you can't land on the carrier, you're worthless. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, how long did you do training and, and what, or I guess is the training, is it with somebody else for a while and then, or? You're solo pretty quick. Oh, really? Yeah, I think maybe after one or two flights, you're on your own. Oh, wow, okay, and then is it? Just like the rest of it, it just kind of gradually ramps up difficulty-wise and, yep. and what have you. How how long uh, of a training pipeline is it at that point until you're getting ready to do um, your deployment workup and, yeah. and actually deploy? It's close to a year um, at 106 or at the training um, squadron for the F-18. It kind of mimics what you did in jets. You know, we, we did the different formation flying, but now it's a little bit more in-depth uh, we did 
Um, we did bombing. We did closer support. You know, so we're, now we're learning about nine lines and and how to uh, ingress low level, how to uh, pop up and roll in on on somebody. Uh, when we would do our closer support training, they would have smoky sams where they'd shoot you know little smoke up in the air, and you'd you'd have to look for that and 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 defend it off of target. You know, so now we're thinking more combat, not yeah. just the not just the stick and rudder skills, but actually applying the weapon system, which is what the F-18 is. Um, we did, you know, aerial gunnery. We did um, in-flight refueling. Um, we did dogfighting. Um, I mean, everything all the way through carrier qualifications. But now carrier qualifications were going at night. And T-45 was day only. And in F-18, it was day and night. Um, and that whole process is 10 months or so. Um, and you go through with a class same thing about you know 10 15 people in the class yeah um and the cool thing about it is uh when you're a brand new guy it's called cat one so you're a cat one which means you need every single flight and then you'd have guys that were maybe doing a a, a different assignment and, and they came back to the f-18 they they were called like cat threes so we're gonna only do um we're only gonna do a couple flights and then go to the carrier you know to get current um, before we go out to our squadron um, but I was fortunate that we had our class leader was a former Tomcat guy, former uh, Top Gun graduate, weapons school instructor, and uh, he went through the full Cat One with us. Mm. So uh, here we are, a bunch of ensigns in lieutenant junior grade, and we're we're having this uh, lieutenant commander like kind of show us the ropes on what it's like to be a fighter pilot. Oh, that's cool! And it was a really cool experience. To me, it would make sense to do that for every class, like yeah. almost like a proctor where you have a seasoned dude come back and do that. Yeah. They, they, we always had a class leader that was an instructor, yeah. you know, but uh, it was nice having this guy that was in class with us. You yeah, know? that's wild. Throughout, well, first question is, so from day one of flight school until kind of irrespective of certification, but to where you were legit like i'm an effective f-18 pilot that could go fuck somebody up in it how yeah. how long of a time frame is that three years yeah it's uh it, yeah i'd say about three years and even even once you get once you graduate the they call it the frs the rag um in the f-18 and you go to your first squadron you, you're treated like you don't know anything yeah there's a whole other you know I'm sure it's like, uh, what is it, SQT? I'm sure it's similar yeah. when you get to your platoon or whatever they teach you, you're, you know? Yeah, now you're you're the spanker new guy. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yep. So I don't, I don't think I ever really felt like that until maybe after, you know, maybe one full deployment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, I guess in that, what um, once you finished that, then where did you go after that? So the, I, went, I joined VFA 87. Uh, they were also at Oceana. Um, so I just moved down the street to a... To another squadron um i was the first new guy that they'd had at, at, since 9-11 they were uh, on the enterprise on 9-11 and so the carrier was actually on its way home uh, and then when the world trade centers were attacked they, the carrier turned around so they were the first guys to uh to drop bombs in afghanistan in oh, response wow. to that so you know i show up as this new guy and they're all combat season aviators you know they dropped a ton of bombs um and i was like in awe of yeah. these guys yeah, I can imagine. Uh, is the graduation from that training pipeline, is that not nearly as big of a deal? It's, no, it's not. They just call it a patching ceremony where they take uh, they put your new squadron patch on. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so how long were you in that pipeline before you actually deployed? Uh, so let's see, I got, I got patched, and I think it was like in May, and we deployed in December. Um, and it really depends on what squadron you go to and where they are in their deployment cycle. Um, some guys would... Uh, you know, they, they would leave 
uh, 106, and they would go right to a carrier on deployment and join the squadron there. No workups or anything. Um, but I was fortunate enough that, that the squadron that I joined had just come back, and so we were able to get um, a set of workups in. Um, in the F-18, they call it, there's the SFARP syllabus, Strike Fighter Advanced Readiness Program. There's an air-to-ground portion and an air-to-air portion, and there's different events you have to fly. Um, and, and you do those either there in Oceana or you would go out to Fallon, Nevada, uh, where, we, where the weapons ranges were, and we'd do, do training there. And then yeah, that's all with just your squadron. And then the, squ- the squadrons in the air wing get together for what's called air wing Fallon. And so they meet in Fallon, uh, and now you're integrating platforms. So now the F-18s are working with the Tomcats in the air wing, are working with the, the E-2s providing control. Um, the Prowlers are doing electronic attack. The, the helicopters are doing search and rescue stuff. And so we had different missions that were all kind of working together, the things that you might expect on deployment. Um, and then from there, you would go to um, actually to the carrier and do what was called a um, Comp2X, a composite training unit exercise. And now um, now you're doing the same things, but you're doing it from the carrier. So you're kind of, hey, I'm living, these are the spaces I'm living in. Um, I go to the Intel spaces, brief the whole air wing strike package or whatever, and they put you in a notional war uh, where, you know, hey, the the rules of engagement haven't been met where we're shooting yet, but there's jets that are coming at the carrier, so you got to take off and intercept them and escort them and and make sure that uh, they don't come any closer. And, and the the war gradually progresses until it's a shooting war, and you know, yeah. Um, so it's a it's definitely a crawl, walk, run mentality. Um, and then you uh, then you deploy that on that one uh, we deployed straight from Comp2X because um, Operation Iraqi Freedom was going to kick off, and uh, and so we didn't even come home uh, from from Comp2X, and we just headed straight across. And uh, what uh, ship were you on? Uh, that was the uh, that was the Roosevelt. Okay, um, so you, was it a six month? Uh, yeah, it ended up being six months. I think. Um, we left straight from Comp2X. It was uh, right after December, I think. Um, and we headed over to the Med, and we were in the Eastern Med. And then uh, we came back around June or so. Okay. About how many F-18s are on a carrier at any given time? It, uh, so our air wing, we had three F-18 squadrons. Each one had about uh, uh, 10 or 12 jets. Um, so you have 30 um, the comp the, the composition of carrier air wings have changed now. You know, at the time we had a Tomcat squadron. Uh, so my first two air wings had comp- Tomcat squadrons. My last air wing, uh, we had two um, Super Hornet squadrons, and then we had two uh, C-model Hornet squadrons. What's the difference between a Hornet and a Super Hornet? The the Super Hornet is about one-third bigger. Like, if you just take the F-18 and stretched it in every direction, um, it carries more gas. It has uh, has two additional weapons pylons in the wings, so instead of, instead of two, it's got three. Um, I like to say it's slower. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it's bigger and heavier, right? It is, yeah. So it's less yeah. nimble, I assume. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it is. Um, th- they, they had a better flight control computer that would allow them to, to uh, do a certain maneuver in, in dogfighting, uh, which we call a pirouette. They could do that just by putting a certain input, uh, kind of like a control-alt-delete on them, mm. you know, where we would have to actually manipulate the rudders and the stick and stuff. Yeah. For, uh, from a dogfighting standpoint... Uh, is my assumption, not knowing shit about planes, that the F-16 being a single engine is the smallest, lightest, most maneuverable, best dogfighter kind of plane, or is it too old to be in, in with a 
No, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very good airplane. I would, I would pick the F-18 over that any day. Um, I fought a lot of F-16s that were flown by Air Force pilots and I beat every single one. Um, but when I went through Top Gun, uh, the, they had instructors flying F-16s and they fought it much differently and I got my butt kicked. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so in in the current lineup, uh, b- both Air Force and Navy Marine Corps, you've got there's no more F-14s, right? Correct. Yep. Is, are there F-15s still or no? There are. Okay, so there's 15s, 16s, 18s, and 22s for the attack uh, fighter jets. Yeah, and the F-35 is the newest. Okay. Um, again, derailing the combo just a little bit. When you look at at the United States, th- there are our arsenal. Uh, as it relates to fighter jets and compare it to the Russian MiGs or yeah. any of the things that the Chinese have. I mean, to me, uh, I assume that those are our two biggest adversaries, Air Force-wise or, yeah. or fighter jet-wise uh, adversarial. Um, how, how would you stack them and, and us together? Like, do, you know, have you, have you gone against any of those airframes even in training? Or? Uh, no, I have not. Um, they, there have been... Um, exchanges that are done on deployments, you know, where we will go fly with foreign uh, air forces. When I was a student at 106th, um, they sent a bunch of 106 instructors over to Germany to fight the MiG-29, which was like the, that was the big Russian threat at the time. Um, and and one of the things that, that uh, cause one of my friends, he ended up becoming a friend. He was one of the guys that was chosen to do it. The, the MiGs are made, um, I don't want to say they're shoddy craftsmanship, but they're not put together the same way American jets are. Um, maybe panels don't line up quite right. You know, they're just more utilitarian. Like I think of them. So it's, it's the McLaren of, uh, of fighter jets <laughs> yeah. then. Yeah. 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 So, um, but as far as like how we stack up against the foreign military, I mean, I'd, I would put our air force, Navy, Marine Corps, whatever I'd put us against any country, but it's quickly shifting the other way. It's quickly shifting where I think China is the number one threat. I think Russia, they don't have the economy to support it. They they'll they make some really advanced fighters, but they don't make a lot of them. You know, yeah. they make enough to say, hey, look what you can buy from us, and then they try to sell it to other yeah. countries. And then China just steals everything. They uh, they take you know uh, a licensed copy of a you know Russian um, you know Sukhoi uh, Su twenty seven, and then they'll they'll. Uh, reverse engineer it and they make their own copies and they'll call it the J 11, you yeah. know, it's the same plane. Um, but they, they do that. They steal plans from, you know, our F 22s and you know, F 35s. And so today yeah. we, if, if our air force, Navy, Marine Corps fighter jet arsenal gets in a war with China in air to air combat, yeah. how's that going to shake out? I mean, I'd still today, I'd put our pilots against theirs and that's what it's going to come down to is the man in the cockpit. Uh, but China's, rapidly improving the way they train. I mean, I think when I first started in the F-18, um, their average was like 100, um, not even 100 hours a year. I think it was probably like less than that, uh, maybe 10 hours a year that their pilots were getting and the rest was all um, you know, in simulators and whatnot. And, and they were, um, we call it GCI reliant, so ground control reliant. So they did not know how to affect their own intercept. They would have to rely on somebody on the ground looking at a radar saying, turn right, stop your turn, you know, and they'd tell them where to point. And they were basically just, you know, kind of flying uh, stick monkeys. Um, whereas we're taught to be very autonomous. I mean, we're taught, go take out that guy, you know. And uh, in fact, we we have controllers that tell us uh, where the bad guys are. 
Um, and then once once we when, once we have them and we've got them on radar and everything, I'll, I'll tell them, I'll say Judy, which means basically means shut up. Like, <laughs> like I've, I've got it. Uh, and they're trained to stop talking at that point. I'm going to have to relay that to the next woman I know. <laughs> next woman I meet that's named Judy. Yeah. Like, you know, you shut the fuck up. Um, man, that's wild. Um, all right, so coming back to the conversation and, and I'm sure we'll go back and forth with some of these capability questions as they pop up along the way. But, uh, Iraqi freedom pops off. Yeah. You go straight over there. You're on the, uh, uh, I'm sorry. What, what was the name? Yeah, I was on the Roosevelt Roosevelt. Yep. Um, how was that deployment? Uh, that one, I mean, the p- deployment was, was really cool because, um, you know, back then we obviously thought, you know, Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and, uh, and we were, we were doing God's work and, Every single mission, I I dropped every single piece of ordnance I had, uh, laser guided bombs, GPS guided bombs, um, joint standoff weapons, um, you know, Mavericks of uh, IR laser variants. Um, how, how much? Like, if you look at, do you know how many uh, bombs you dropped? How many pounds? I can't. No, I can't remember. Yeah, it's not something you keep track of. No, I don't. Um, I guess if you give a rough percentage of of all of the bombs that you dropped, how how many of them were close air support and supportive troops? Ninety percent. Oh yeah, ninety sure. percent. That was so. Um, our primary mission was called XCAS, so we were on call, close air support. Uh, we were in the Eastern Mediterranean, so we fly through Turkey and then enter Iraq from the north, and uh, that's where the tankers were, and we we tank there, and then uh, the controller which I think was an E3 AWACS, they would push us to a kill box. And they'd say, go to this kill box, talk to this, uh, you know, JTAC on this, you know, frequency, and you'd check in with them. Um, and early in the war, uh, it was all, uh, you know, OGA and SOF in the northern part of Iraq because the, the main conventional forces were in the south. And um, I mean, I'll, I'll, almost every single mission, we were talking to guys, and we were the only help they had. So... You could hear machine gun fire in the background. Hey, we're taking fire, you know, and um, you could see the, the their IR strobes, and you knew where they were, and you you knew you were the only guy that could help them out. And um, there were there were other guys in the air wings that would drop their bombs, and 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 you, they could still hear the machine gun fire in the background. Like, what else you got? And like, you know, I got I got twenty mic mic. And they're like, yeah, you're starting to strafe, you know, and and so they were doing everything. Uh, so we dropped every single bomb we had. Yeah, yeah that's wild. Um, do you remember how many flights, how many, do you call them sorties? Yeah, them? sorties. Um, I don't remember how many combat sorties I flew on that cruise, but it was pretty sustained um, for, for several months, kind of until we had a more persistent presence. Was it every day, multiple yeah, times a day? Yeah, it was every day. Yeah. Every day. Uh, what, what was an average length um, of that how one, long? About five or six hours were the... Wow. You know, because we, we had to fly through Turkey, which took up a lot of our time. And then uh, uh, and then you'd have a certain vulnerability window. And a lot of times, if you were working with the JTAC and and uh, they were still needing your assistance um, and you had to, everything on the ship is based on your recovery time. So they tell you, you had to be back at this time um, to land. And if you'd miss a recovery, you had to wait a whole cycle for the next one. Um, and so we'd have to coordinate that back, like to talk to the AWACS, say, hey, can you talk to the ship and see if we can make the next recovery? And so then you just have to stay out longer, get another uh, pa- couple passes through the tanker. Um, so refueling. it was, yeah, 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 for refueling. Yeah. Uh, there's so many fucking moving parts with that. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Do you know why it's called a sortie? Is that an acronym for something? Yeah, I don't know why. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
How do you not know that? <laughs> I never thought about it. Yeah. yeah. That's, I always wondered what the fuck that meant. But yeah. You know, we used to be talking about a knife fight in a phone booth. Like, we want to get in close with the guy, fight really slow, and just slowly move your way into position to shoot him. Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.